Yes, what a great worship band. I'd like to join that band. David, is it, could I do that? Where's David? Could I join the group? I mean, I've got a unique talent. I'll pray about it. I don't, I don't think he is going to pray about it. I play the spoons. In Arkansas, you know, they, um, they, uh, they, they have the, the picking and the grinning. Have you seen that? Really and truly. You go to some of these little towns, and there in the square are these old-timers, you know, and they don't just have a tooth or two. And, uh, and, and they're, they're doing all kinds of strumming and picking and grinning. And then they've, they've got a guy there that's playing the spoons. He's got these two spoons, and he's playing these spoons on his, on his thigh here, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I've developed that talent, David. And... No? Well, I've got one right here. No, I don't, actually. I... I've got a six-pack there, but it's surrounded by a cooler. That's right. That's right. So I'm trying to get back to my washboard, though. I'm working at it. Not too hard, though. What was that burger place we went to today? In and out. Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay, we better get off food topic. Well, um, thank you for my, my uh, slide there. Um, I'm just going to keep you tantalized as to why I start and try to finish each talk with that particular slide, okay? I just want, I just want you to kind of, you know, just to, you know, so I'll tell you at some point, but up until then, I, I should not tell you. <laughs> <coughs> so there. Now, um, <coughs> Like I said, in Arkansas, it's a very unique state. And uh, there's, uh, this is the way that, uh, this, is, this is our headquarters. This is our, this is our office. I don't understand why you're laughing. There's class A business space. There's class B, class C. This is class A business space in Arkansas. This is top of the line. Okay? And um, so, you know, I wanted to be on my best behavior here. I wore my shoes. And uh, this is my wife and I before we had our dental work done. Everybody in Arkansas, we, we, you, you've heard that we've, that's where the toothbrush was invented. You know that. You've heard that one? Okay. That's right. If, if it was in any other state, it would have been called the teeth brush. <laughs> but uh, we, we do. Is someone just getting it over there? I don't know. What, uh... <coughs> that one tooth. I got that one tooth. Yeah, right. Uh, we do have a barn. And boy, do we have groups in that barn. We have so much fun with that barn. And uh, you'll have to come visit us. Maybe just kind of take a, just drive out for a weekend retreat, okay? Can you do that? Drive out, get, maybe come on Friday night, leave on Sunday afternoon, and just, just come out for a retreat. Yeah, okay. Okay, we'll reserve it for you. <clears throat> but I, I, I grew up as a city boy in Dallas. 
concrete jungle. And so now, you know, I get to drive my tractor and feed my chickens and listen to my country music, you know, wear my boots and, and uh, get cancer spots that need to be dug out of my face and head, you know. So, you know, I thought dermatologist was for teenage girls who had acne, you know, Pastor. It's for, it's, I'm sitting in a room with all these old men who are having, you know, cancers cut, cut out from them, you know. So if I'd only known. Uh, well, we better move on. <laughs> this is one of my desires. This is one of my prayers for my time here is that, um, is that we could develop more vision and more passion. <clears throat> vision and passion. Vision is what you see. Passion in some ways is what you, what you feel. It's kind of your head and your heart mixed together. Have you met someone on campus that they were raised in a Christian home and they went to all the youth groups and the, 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 the summer mission thing and the, and the youth conferences and they got all the materials and the notebooks and everything, but they just seem like they're just the, the, lethar, the spiritual lethargy. They just can't get them off the dime. They, just, they think they're mature Christians, but they're really cold fish, you know? Have you ever shook hands with someone and you're expecting a, a good firm shake, and it's just the dead, dead fish. It's kind of, you kind of want to kind of do this, don't you, you know? That's right. That's what a Christian is who's lost their vitality. They, they're, they're really, Jesus says, they're, not, they're good for nothing but to be thrown out. You know, the, the salt has lost its taste is what the concept is there, right? And then occasionally you, you, you lead someone to Christ, and, man, they don't know anything. They hadn't been to any youth camps. They didn't ever go on mission trips. Their parents weren't, you know, the, the, the deacons or elders or, you know, it, it's just, they just are brand new. They're fresh. They got tons of passion, but virtually no knowledge. It's all heart, no head. And they're running around like with a chicken, like their head cut off, you know, and what would you rather work with the uh, option one or option two? Who would you rather start to disciple? Yeah, I think I'd have to go after option two. <laughs> And so if a Christian, so-called Christian, wants to be part of your ministry, um, the only way I've gotten to get them to undo their lethargy, to jackhammer the concrete, you know, up somehow, that they would start to be teachable because they think they know it all, is evangelism. It's the only way I know how to do it. The Bible studies won't do it. Sermons won't do it. They, they've heard all the sermons. They've been to all the Bible studies. And so I like to take them out and, and, and with me, and we're going to share the gospel with someone. And then I just conveniently turn to them and say, well, Ryan here is a Christian, and Ryan, why don't you just share with Joe here how he can become a Christian? Ryan looks at you like he's going to throw knives right through you, you know. And Ryan doesn't know how to share the gospel with someone. And now he finally is being humbled. Your goal is not to make him look like a total fool. Maybe just a little bit of a fool, you know. But the only, that's the only thing that I have seen to jackhammer this concreteness of, of these so-called Christians that come to campus is evangelism. Have you sent anybody, is there anything you have found to, to somehow jolt them from their, their pride and their spiritual pride and lethargy that they would become teachable? I don't know. I, I, I don't see it. And so the ministry, this sounds terrible, 
But the ministries that I've been associated with for years, when they go to a campus, they don't let Christians be involved. What do you mean, Steve? I thought that's what a ministry is. I thought their ministry is made up of Christians. <laughs> well, not when you start. And so uh, they start, they can't, they can't spend time with any Christians. They're going to start with evangelism. They're going to build a core of people that they led to Christ. And so if a Christian wants to be involved, the only way early on as you're starting this campus ministry, the only way they can be involved is if they will go with you and participate with you and be a fellow evangelist with you as you're trying to reach this campus. You see what I'm saying? The DNA is very strong. And I think the DNA of this particular campus ministry is very strong because I think that has been a huge emphasis for you. But we're going to talk about preparing for impact, okay? How do we prepare for impact, not just on our campus, but for our life, our whole life? How does that work? <clears throat> the word revival, Baptist, we're, we're, we're famous for revivals, aren't we? We put up a sign and, you know, we have a speaker come in and they stay the whole week and revival. And I was at a conference one time where a a speaker, he was a navigator uh, representative, and he, he had us spread out all across this gymnasium at this conference, and he, everybody had a piece of chalk. And he wanted us all to draw a circle around ourselves here and then stand there and wait for instructions from him. <clears throat> I thought, this is cool. We're going to play some kind of game or something. You know, it's like, you know, where we're hopscotch or something different, you know, circles or something. I didn't know what it was going to be. I was kind of excited, you know. And he says, do not leave your circle until revival breaks out. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I felt this incredible confinement, you know. Do not leave my circle until revival breaks out. Huh. I always thought revival was like meetings with big churches and tents and, and, and banners and stuff and week-long speakers and he said, no, it starts with one person, and it's your decision. <laughs> it's your decision. Every campus ministry, every revival, every, every movement I've ever seen or read about, it always starts with one person. And so why can't it be you? Why couldn't it be you? Why does it have to be someone else? And it's usually not a staff person, friends. It's usually not a staff person. It is a Normal garden variety type, you know, student. That Ezekiel twenty two thirty was the first verse that I ever memorized as a brand new Christian where God says, and I searched for a man among them that they should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me, but what? I found no one. As a young Christian, I, I read that verse, it just inflamed my heart. I mean, it just... It just, it just, I said, oh God, I want to be that person that will stand in the gap for you, even though nobody else does. That might be a good verse for you. Ezekiel 22, 30, write that down, okay? That may be your verse. That God is calling you to be that man or that woman, not just at your campus, but someday at your job, someday at your neighborhood, someday at your, he's looking for someone who will stand in the gap be his man. That's how revival takes place. And so there are three kinds of people really on this earth. <coughs> Excuse me. Those who make things happen. Those who watch things happen. 
And thirdly, those who don't know what's happening. <laughs> That's right. They're just totally blinded. They, they have no concept. So will you be the one? It also kind of connects to this idea of why you're at college. Why are you at college? I remember Walt Hendrickson, one of the old Navigator speakers years ago at Glen Erie, when I was your age, coming to a kind of a Christmas conference over the New Year break there at Glen. Walt was a famous teacher, preacher, author, you know. And he looked at this crowd that we were sitting there, and he said, if you're at college for any other reason but to be a missionary for Jesus Christ, you're there for sinful, selfish reasons. Whoa, what, what are you talking about, man? Is, is, we've gone overboard now. Come on. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? So he did. And so think about that. You're talking to someone and say, well, why are you at college? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd like to get a degree. Oh, okay. Well, why would you like to get a degree? Well, you know, I, if I get a degree, I'm you know, probably going to be able to get a better job. Okay, well, why would you like to better, have a better job? And you go, well, <laughs> I kind of see where you're going with this, you know. Well, you know, it's going to, you know, you know it's, it's probably going to, you know, pay a better salary. <laughs> well, why do you want a better salary? Well, <laughs> 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 you know. I'm kind of accustomed to a lifestyle that I'd like to, you know, kind of perpetuate. <laughs> Can you see why Walt would say, if, if that's our thinking, if that's our, if that's our line of thinking, that we are there for ultimately, right, sinful, selfish reasons. I can see, his, see what he was saying, right? So I'm not saying flunk out of college. Please don't go home and say, hey, Dad, the, uh, the speaker said I'm supposed to, you know, skip class. And, you know, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But why are you at college? Okay? I'm not saying don't get a good education. Don't study or don't take your tests and do well, etc. I just want to challenge you not to make an A in your major and an F in the kingdom. Okay? And we're going to talk more about that. I don't want to spill the beans too early here. Here are five questions that must be answered. So fasten your seatbelts if you would. Prepare for impact. Um, number one, what is the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? This same speaker at that same conference, he was a very uh, intimidating, focused speaker, and he got right up in the face of the, the people on the front row right here, and he kept yelling at them, you know, whose responsibility is the Great Commission? You know, I mean, they're just like shaking in their boots, you know. And, and one person, you know, ventured a, an answer and they said, uh, ours, you know, thought that might be the right answer. He was just, you know, just hoping it was. He goes, what, do you have a frog in your pocket or something? You know, and so we were saying, is, is that a joke? I mean, are we supposed to laugh? I mean, uh, you know, what, what, what does he mean by that, you know? And, and so he kept going and attacking us, you know, until someone finally said, what, it's, my responsibility. So I'll never forget that uh, particular <laughs> conference, you know. I said, I want to challenge students, but not quite like that. <laughs> but go ahead. Let's do some evening exercise. Get that finger up, if you would, okay? Do a little knee bends there, little little finger bends, you know. And, uh, and now point at yourself. Just go ahead and point it at yourself. <laughs> it's his responsibility. No, no. Say, it's my responsibility. 
thank you for that, that hearty, hearty statement there. Well, that's what he was trying to help us to understand, that we have a responsibility to take this on personally. Not the great omission, but the great commission, right? And I can tell whether a person has taken personal responsibility for the Great Commission. You know how? They have a plan. They have a strategy. I mean, you've got plans about other areas. You have study plans, right? Some of you guys have some dating, dating strategies, I can tell. You know, some of you ladies have, have some tanning strategies, I can tell. You know, and I've, been, I've been working on mine. You know, I'm, I've got the native, the native tan there. Some of you guys have kind of the workout strategy, you know, get the, get the pectorials buffed up, you know. <laughs> Some of you old timers have your 401k strategy, you know, you're looking at your stocks and your bonds and, you know, perfect, you know. Isn't it amazing how many areas we have strategies and plans on, except the ones that are, God has told us to, to have a, a plan in this eternal area of the Great Commission. So what is the Great Commission? You know, what, what is it? It's, here's, um, here's the verse. I'm sure, how many of y'all memorize this? Okay, well, you'll be familiar with it. Here it is. <clears throat> A lot of authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of many nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you usually, even to the ends of the earth. Is this, y'all familiar with this one? There's something wrong with this one? Just a few things? This is the, um, the lukewarm Christian version or something, right? The LCB, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I butchered a little bit. I'm sorry. Here, here, here it is. Here, here's the real thing. <clears throat> All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of how many? All. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All. that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would include these four alls? I mean, he could have used other words. There are five final commissions that Jesus gave, five final statements. I believe there are five different settings. One in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then, of course, Acts 1.8, this final one before he ascended. Five different times, five different places over a period of, 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 of about a week during that final 40 days of his life, he gave these five final commissions. Why would, he, why would he spend so much time on this, saying this and repeating this and coming at it from different angles to try to help us to understand the, the marching orders that he is leaving us with? And then he uses this all, all authority, all the nations, all that I have commanded you. I'll be with you always. I mean, it's, it's an all-inclusive, comprehensive command that he's given you and I, isn't it? So I'm, I'm looking at this like a sandwich. That's why I have it in these three parts, okay? You got your two pieces of bread, and your middle one there is the meat of the passage. 
Now, if tomorrow for lunch, if someone were to say, what are we having for lunch? And someone says, well, we're having wheat bread sandwiches. You go, wheat bread? Is that it? Oh, no, we're having sourdough sandwiches also. Oh, really? Is that it? No, you say I'm having a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich, right? That's what the meat of the, that's how it's described. This is no different. And so verse 18 in Matthew 28 is the, the top part about the authority. This is the promise of his power, right? He promises all of his power to you and I. Verse 20, lo, I am with you always. This is his presence. His power and his presence are those two pieces of sandwich to surround the, the meat of it, the heart of it, the command of it, the imperative of it, to go and make disciples of all the nations. See? Now, friends, if I was just given verse 19... Without 18 or 20, you're telling me, Lord, that I'm supposed to go out in my own power and somehow, some way, in my puny little power, go out across the planet and make disciples of all the nations? You've got to be kidding me. I'm scared spitless. But if you tell me that you're going to give me all your power and all of your presence, that you're going to back me to the hilt, oh, man, I'm, I'm ready to go now. With, with, with the power and the presence of Jesus Christ filling us and empowering us, we can do it, can't we? No wonder he felt the freedom to keep commanding us, commanding us, commanding us. He knew he was going to give us all of his power and all of his presence to pull it off. Whew. Thank you, Lord, that we get to participate. What a privilege. He could do it without us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. It's a privilege to cooperate with the God of the universe to the Son of God who came and spent 33 years among us. And so this idea of making disciples, I don't see that very often. I don't see that very often. I, I just had coffee with a with a, with, a, with a college pastor of a major, major college church. And I was asking him about his, um, you know, his, um, his ministry. And they're having tons of people that come to their weekly meeting and then tons of small groups that have come out of those weekly meetings. But that was the extent. That's as far as they went. If they could get them there for the large group teaching and the worship, and, of course, they had smoke. David, can you add smoke here to the band as it's... Uh, <laughs> As it's, uh, will you do that? Can you kind of add that smoke and maybe over where my spoons are, some extra smokes, maybe, you know? No, smoke is okay, you know. I mean, you know, laws is not this smoke, you know. But at prayer list, thank you. Get as many people as you can in the building for your worship service. See how many small groups you can start. That was it. That was that. That that, that was the that success. But I think he's stopping too short. He's stopping short. Because the command is not to see how many people you get into a building for a, a teaching service, right? The command is not to see how many small groups you can start and pat ourselves on the back. That says, golly, we got 48 small groups. How many do you have? Well, only 21. I'll pray for you, brother, you know. <laughs> so I'm just saying, let's not fall into the trap of how the world measures success 
even how some other Christian groups might measure success. You use the scriptures as your measure to make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. And so this idea of what is the Great Commission, we've got to, we've got to figure that one out, friends. Number two, these five questions that we're going to get to to prepare for intact. Number one, what is your life objective? What is your life objective? Most of us are wrapped up in going to college, but I don't know, where does it say to go to college in the Bible? Uh, I'm still looking for that verse. Where does it say to make good grades? I mean, I appreciate good grades, but I, I don't see it in there. It's a choice. It's a choice you have. It's an option you have. It's something our culture says we should do. But God is totally silent about that. And so here are these three S's. You see that? Is, is, is there little diagrams on your page at all? Did they come out or not? Did they come out? Is it on the back side or where is it? Well, I got my three little, three, you see my three S's and my three W's? Well, college students, we're notorious for the three S's. Studies, social life, and the whole sporting, all the, all the things that wrap up in the whole sporting things that we'd be involved in, right? Exercise and intramurals and tailgating and et cetera, et cetera, right? Those seem to be the priorities. And students lock those in. They lock those in. And then if they have time, they'll squeeze in a little quiet time or squeeze in a little Bible study or squeeze in a little worship service or something. See what I'm saying? But then I read Matthew 6, and it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So if I'm a Matthew 6, man, I think I will prioritize the kingdom of God. And so the three W's, there they are. I think those are at least three, right? Worship, the word, witness. Wouldn't you say the Bible's pretty clear about those? So why in the world would I put all my priorities and lock in things that God is completely silent about and either ignore or just kind of give, give little, you know, squeeze it in here and there as I can to the things that he is to he's very clear about. Someone switched the price tags. And so how can we become Matthew 6.33 men or women? How do you balance that? I don't know. It's, it's a challenge, isn't it? I know it's a challenge. I know it is. But student ones, really, truly, if you look at their life, they are seeking other things first. Student two, who locks these things in, and then if they choose, well, I think I'm going to go to college. Well, I think I'm going to exercise. Well, I think I'm going to start having a social life, you know. Uh, I think I'll squeeze. Uh, the things that God is completely silent about, I'm going to squeeze those things into the things that he is very clear about. And even the things he's silent about, I'm going to do it for his glory and for his honor and to somehow use it as a means for witness, see. Don't say I'm, you're not supposed to go to college. I'm not saying I'm not supposed to study. Don't say that. I'm just saying let's be true to the word of what God is clear about. And let's not let the world shape us. In, at Glen Airy this past week, we talked a lot about Romans 12 too. You know the verse. Do not be conformed to this world. But what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do you do that? <laughs> well, from the word. By the renewal of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So I think every one of us has a decision, don't we? As you discern the will of God for your life, 
I can either be conformed to how the world is pressing me into its mold, or I can choose to be transformed by the renewing of my mind from the Word of God. So please, stay in college, but ask yourself why I am in college. Don't leave behind a 4.0 in some piece of paper, in some file, in some dean's office, but there's not a single person that you left behind that's going to keep walking with Christ as a result of your life. Don't, don't do that. I had a close friend who was a varsity swimmer, and he was graduating from college ahead of me some, and he wanted to meet with me in the back of the student union and kind of privately. I thought he was going to confess some sin to me or something, you know. He wanted to meet back in a booth, you know, just the two of us. I said, what's up, bro? <laughs> Dude? <laughs> Everything okay? You know? He said, Shad, I've led 100 guys to Christ during my time here in college. I said, that's great. He said, no. That's not great. Because I don't know where one single one of them is. This guy was diswrought. He had come to college wanting to leave this big spiritual legacy, and he was walking away with Zippo. I felt so sorry for him. As I walked slowly back to my fraternity house, I said, oh, God, please let me leave behind a legacy that will live beyond me. Men who will continue to walk with Christ and share the gospel and make disciples that there'd be a spreading legacy that I could leave behind. That I would make disciples, not just converts. That was a powerful moment in my life to meet with that guy. So there's three kinds of Christians, friends. <clears throat> One is busy. You see them on your campus. They, take their, they have this, this badge of busyness. That, that means they're important. That means they're popular. If they're busy, 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 their schedule is full, 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 well, that means they're, they're somebody. And so they're, they're buzzing from this Bible study to this worship service to this prayer meeting to the, over here to this church and this scrap, and you know, and they're just busy, busy, busy. And they somehow think that equals spirituality or somehow equals maturity. And they pack their schedule. And their esteem is built upon how busy their schedule is. The second type of Christian is they're not busy, but they're effective. They're, they're effective. They know how to say no to some things, but they're still too spread out. They're, they're still a shotgun instead of a rifle. But precious few on a college campus are in this third category. They're not busy. They're not just effective. They're strategic. They are like a rifle. They know exactly why they're at that college, and they're going to stay focused on that. This person doesn't need to go to any more workshops on how to discern the will of God. They have come up with their life objective. Mine during college was I kind of stole the navigators. It was to know Christ and to make him known. But if I were you, I'd get in your prayer closet. I'd get in your Bible. I'd, I'd think through, what is your life objective? What is the statement that describes who, who you want to be in Christ? Don't just use mine. You, what is yours? And that helps you, friends. <clears throat> it helps you stay on track. It helps you make decisions. I mean, let's face it. 
Isn't there a conveyor belt right in front of each of you that has all kinds of options, all kinds of decisions that you've got to make every day and little ones and big ones? How in the world are you supposed to figure out how to make those decisions? And they're all screaming at you. They're all coming by this conveyor belt and they're all yelling, pick me, pick me, pick me, you know. Well, you go, well, I don't know which one I'm supposed to pick, you know. Well, if you've spent time in this book and you've come up with what God's life goal, life objective is for you, you know how to make those decisions. As they're all screaming at you, pick me, pick me, you know. You go, no, no, no. Ah, yes. I'm going to put that right into my life and my future. No, no, no. Ah, yes. That one fits perfectly right within the the life objective that God has me pursuing. <clears throat> what is your life objective? Write it out. Design it. Pray about it. Share it with others. See what you think. Okay? Number three. Third question. What is vision? And how do you get one? <laughs> There's some visionaries in this room, are there not? Well, how did they get it? I mean, was it like a... A Chinese restaurant, and they cracked open the, you know, the, the fortune cookie. And, you will be a world changer. <laughs> I did take my daughter out to a Chinese restaurant, and both of our cookies, we opened them up, and they were strangely accurate to our current situation. And I said, what in the world, you know? Maybe God can speak through fortune cookies, but please don't... Uh, <laughs> Don't count on it, okay? I'm, I'm, don't go back and say, the speaker told us to, uh, you know, get fortune cookies, and that's how we discern the will of God. No, no. But uh, people do stranger things, don't they? The astrology hotlines, you know, what am, what am I supposed to do today, you know? and I mean, all kinds of strange stuff. But what is vision, and how do you get one? Vision is what you see, like we talked about. <clears throat> passion is what you feel together. It's a powerful combination. A man or woman of vision and passion, especially if it's for Jesus Christ, is going to be a world changer. It's going to be a world changer. Jeremiah 33.3, you know, who knows that one? Who knows Jeremiah 33.3? Y'all just memorize New Testament verses probably. Is that right? Y'all know there's an Old, Old Testament too? And, Call to me, and what? And I'll answer you, and what? And show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Put that on your scripture memory list right there, bro. Come on now, come on. <laughs> Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me, I will show you, I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So if you don't have a vision yet for your life or for your ministry, get with God. He wants to show you one. Take this book, get in your prayer closet, and you start reading and praying and seeking God and going over these passages that are meaningful to you, or the promises and the, the exhortations and the principles. Start get, 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 get with some of your best buddies, some of your prayer warrior, you know, ministry warrior, you know, uh, friends here and say, you know, let, let's, let's start figuring out what is the vision God has for each of us. Without a vision, what? What does it say? Without a vision, the people perish. Yeah, that's a, 
Another Old Testament verse. Yeah, there we go. So how do you get that vision? You know, get, get, go on an on a, on a asking and imagining consultation with the Lord. Take a spirit-led road trip with him. So here's two questions maybe to help you. If God were to have his total way in your life, what would it look like? That's a fun question. That's a scary question, really, isn't it? If he were to have his total way, I mean, if, if there were no restrictions, no restraints, I have no little reservations. Got every single room, every single closet, every single cabinet in my house, the house of my heart, the heart of my house <laughs> is yours. I'm not hiding anything from you. In fact, I'm giving you the title deed to my house. What if... What if God were to have his total way in your life? What would that look like? Friends, that's a good discussion to have. Good prayer to pray. You might, might make a little list. I know that might seem scary to you. But man, that will set you free. If God has his total way in your life, friends, not only are you a world changer, but you're going to experience such freedom and power in your soul that you've never experienced. Second question, what if God were to have his total way on your campus? What would that look like? Now, that'd be a fun thing to really talk about with some of your core folks here to really talk about and think about. If he were to have his total way at Chico State, what would that look like? Imagine, pray, envision, what would that look like on our campus if now God had his total way on this campus? Wow, wow. You talk about revival breaking out. You talk about planting the flag of Jesus Christ right at the center of that campus. We've prayed that prayer before on different campuses, and I've seen God answer that prayer. And so we pray this year, Lord, we want every single student on this campus to come to a fork in the road, and they'll have to personally answer this question, what will you do with Jesus Christ? I've seen a whole campus be faced with that. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Wow. So those are some, uh, some ideas on how to go about getting that vision that we're talking about. And the bottom line is, do you, do you want to be a world changer? Do you want to be a world changer? I think there's a lot of folks in this room that desire to be a, a world changer. I mean, you're living in unprecedented times. You really are. So take those promises, believe on, believe them, stand on them, walk on it like you would a, a bridge, okay? And think about what promises have you really believed God on. Think about all the promises in the scriptures. Is there one or two that you could think of? No, Steve, I, I have taken God as his word. Here's the promise in the Bible, and I have taken it, and I have uh, walked on it as if it was a bridge. I have put my faith in a promise of God that he's given me in the scriptures. Well, think about what the verse was, what that promise was. I think that'll be very helpful and challenging and encouraging to you. Number four. Are we on number four? <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, um, I did okay in some classes in school, but anything had to do with words or numbers. I struggled with those. 
Uh, other subjects, I was okay in, but words and numbers, those were tough classes for me. Um, okay, I think we're doing, how big is your God? Okay, what number is that? <laughs> Thank you so much. 4.2. Who knows Ephesians 3.20? I know you know this one. Someone maybe in this area here that's wearing black. I'll start you off. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly or infinitely above all that you could ask or even imagine. Hello. Now you've messed me up with the final section here. I've forgotten it. Now, yeah, we got different translations going, don't we? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think according to the power that works within you. There you go. I'm a NASB guy. Sorry about that. You know what a NASB guy is? Pastor. Gary knows what a NASB guy is. <laughs> new American Standard. We don't go for those newfangled versions. No, we love your version. Sorry. But Ephesians 3.20, are you Ephesians 3.20 man or woman, okay? Are you believing God for big things? What is your view of God? The size of your prayers will be determined by the size of your God, right? Are you praying for mountains or molehills? If the extent of your prayers, oh, Lord, help me with this test. Oh, Lord, help me find a parking place. I'm late for class. Oh, Lord, you know. He's waiting on us, friends. He is literally waiting on us for asking for big things. He really is. He, he, he wants us to ask him. Will you turn in your Bibles? Go ahead and turn them in. No, no. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32. If you get that, turn there if you would. Um, this is an amazing little, little section here. Maybe you've never really thought about what's happening in this particular scenario, but Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32... Jesus once again was walking along with his disciples. Okay, they, they, for three years they did this, right? They were walking along together. But look what verse 32 says. Jesus and his disciples, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. <coughs> and again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them or to him. Was this the second time he was going to do this? Was this the third time? Was this the fourth time? It says, again, he was going to rehearse with them what was about to happen to him. Why in the world would he feel the need to go over it two times, three times, four times? Apparently, he did not get the response he was looking for, you know, the first time from the disciples. And so he says, okay, sit down. We're going to go over it one more time. See if you can get it this time. Okay, ready? Here we go. Behold. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. That's a pretty powerful little lineup of, you know, what's going to happen this week, guys? And I don't know what kind of response he was hoping to get from the disciples, that he would feel the need to do this again and again and again. Was he hoping that Peter would say, we're with you, Lord? Or John would say, we'll die for you, Jesus. I, I don't know. But apparently, 
Uh, doesn't, the text doesn't say how they responded, except to say this. Look at James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. They came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. If I was Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of gores, Son of God, and once again had just told my key men about, I mean, spit on, mocked, killed, hoping for some kind of response, but no, whoosh, right over their heads again. Instead, two of my disciples come up and go, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, I'd be tempted to go, Why, you ungrateful little ant you. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I would. What does Jesus do? That's not what he does. Look what he says. He says, okay, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, my word. What a response. Okay. What is it you want me to do for you? You tell me. You name it. He loved to ask this question. He, he asked it again in verse 51. Look at this. In a whole different situation, a whole different set of circumstances, there it is again. What do you want me to do for you? Friends, he's asking you that question right now. He's waiting for you to ask him for big things. He wants you to honor him, to test him, to prove how big and powerful and loving he is. If we ask him for little dinky things or not ask him for anything at all, how does that bring glory to him? Let's honor him by the magnitude of our requests. Do you see how that honors God? He's an Ephesians 3.20 God, and he wants us to ask him for things beyond our even imagination. God answered our prayers just this past fall. I mean, we were just praying for an office. We, we were being booted out of our office. We needed a new office. And God gave us four acres, one mile from the campus, 16,000 square feet of space, asking $495,000. Hello. A bidding war immediately started, you know, with all these, these developers. You know, they were going to scrape everything and build apartments as prime real estate. Bidding would have gone up to a million dollars. We called the owners of the church, the leader of the church. Here's who we are. Here's what we want to do with it. Will you sell it to us? Yes, we will. We weren't even praying for that. It was, it was a, a request beyond what we, we had even thought about or, or imagined. And God gave it to us. That was an answered prayer for us here recently, beyond we, what we could have even prayed. So don't ask him for molehills, okay? Start asking him for mountains. You can tell a lot about the size of your God by looking at your prayer list. Look at your prayer list and say, do I have a big God or do I have a little dinky God? Number five. I guess this is, uh, am I on the right track? Shadrach? Shadrach. Sounds like my coach in junior high. Shadrach, I'm going to send you to Timbuktu. That was, that was Pinky Corals, my coach. Uh, I'm still having nightmares. I'll tell that story later. Number five. 
Are you prepared for spiritual warfare? Friends, if you start, not, not a lot of you are already pursuing this, not if you start pursuing. If you start and continue to pursue what I'm talking about today, <laughs> what Paul and others are talking about, you're going to be engaging in some pretty radical spiritual warfare. You really are. And, and so think about it. Think back to the, the Civil War, for instance. I'm a history buff. I'm, I'm just reading and all kinds of history and going places to try to find history. And I was at Gettysburg on the 150th anniversary of the, of the, of the, of the, the battle there in July of in the 1860s there. And so, you know, the, you remember how the stories, you know how the, the, the Union soldiers would line up in a giant line and the Confederate soldiers would line up in a big line and, and then they just fired each other. That's not the way I would do war. I'd kind of have some, you know, guerrilla warfare, you know, kind of on the sides there, you know, and, and not just, you know, stand and just shoot each other, right? But that's how they did it. But now, again, I, I know I'm not supposed to use, that's politically incorrect and, you know, insensitive to use any military war examples these days. Sorry about that. But Jesus did and, John, and Paul did, so I feel some measure of freedom. <laughs> so, if you're one, on one of these soldiers, if you're on one of these lines and you see private, private, private colonel, private, private, private general, well, I think if you wanted to win that war, you might focus some of your attention on those officers, Satan is no different. He is no different. You know who he's training his, his sights on? It's the Great Commission Christians. It's the one who wants to make a difference. It's the one who's going to plant that flag of Jesus Christ in the center of the campus. That's who he's painted a target on the back of their, their backs. See, He doesn't even fool with the bless me Christians. He has them wrapped around a little. They're so consumed with their own little life, their own little problems, their own little prayers. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't spend time with them. He's not, he's not focused on them. 1 Peter 5, you remember it says the, the, uh, the adversary, the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion. Remember that verse? Seeking whom he may what? Devour is a strong word, friends. Devour. I mean, it's the idea of a lion. Anybody ever been to Kenya or one of the African and seen the safaris, the lion safari? Hello. I've been out on these lion safaris. They're the only animal in the whole continent there. They're just lazy day. They just let it sleep and they're not worried about one single thing. They just sleep. And, but you know all the other animals, you know what they're doing? They're constantly running, looking like this. They're always looking behind their back, except the lion. So right before we got there, there was a safari, and two college students had been on this safari. The driver was telling us, I bet they had too much to drink. Because one of them, yeah, uh-oh, is right. <laughs> one of them dared the other one to get out of the back of that truck that they take the safaris in, go over with that, that, that lazy sleeping lion, and just pat him on the little bottom there and run back to the truck. Stupid. That lion, as soon as that guy reached his hand out, a paw, whoosh, went right at him, and then big jaws right to the, right to the neck. He was dead in 30 seconds. Friends, that's quite a picture, isn't it? That's the picture of our enemy, the, the devil, who prowls about like a what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may distract. Hey, look over here. Look over here. <laughs> Look over here. No, it's not distract. 
it's not disrupt, you know, you know, who's the, who's the basketball player that, you know, in the middle of the game, they run down, he trips the other player, you know, it takes a, no one will see. I can't think who that guy is, but no, it's not tripping them. It's devouring us. That scares the weebie jeebies out of me, whatever those are. <laughs> but you are public enemy number one, friends, for Satan. And if I'm not being persecuted, what does that say about me? That's 2 Timothy 3.12. We're actually talking about that at dinner. I'm going to finish up here, Paul, okay? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. <laughs> it sounds like a promise to me. I don't know. You help me. I'm not real good at sentences. But if you turn that around, it seems like that if I'm not being persecuted, does it mean that I'm not truly living godly in Christ Jesus? And we were saying that at dinner, we somehow think persecution is bad. No. No. We're praying the Chinese won't be persecuted. And what? They're praying that what? We will be persecuted. So we're, we're, we're missing each other somehow. Over the Atlantic Ocean, I guess, our prayers are kind of missing. But I think they know something we don't know. Don't be afraid of persecution. That means you're taking the gospel seriously. You can tell a lot about someone by who loves you and who hates you. So friends, I hope that you'll be such a difference maker in your life that you'll have people that love you, for sure. But you'll also have people that hate you. And, be, and it's because of the gospel, not because of our, our silly, you know, arrogance or something. Let's review for a second. What was the first one? You tell me what the first one was. What was it? What is the Great Commission? What's the second one? What is your life objective? Wow. What is your third one? What is vision? How do you get one? Number four? Number five? tell this story and I'll pray and, and sit down. My daughter and I, uh, KK and I, we adopted from Ukraine. We, I like to take a kind of a trip with each of my kids after high school or college. It's just the two of us. And so I wanted, she'd been wanting for a long time to go back to Ukraine, to back, go back to Kharkov, to the orphanage where, she, where we got her from, to find out if could we find the apartment where she was born. Is there any relatives that were there? I'll tell that story to you sometime. But and we were able to find, um, you know, took her to the orphanage, took her to the, which, you know, one of the uncles that we found said, well, do you realize you have a little sister, you know? And, well, no, I didn't have, oh, I have a little So we found a little sister, four years younger of, of, of my daughter's now, you know. We found, actually found her birth father. And he didn't even know, I think, that KK existed. But um, anyway, it was an amazing week to spend with my daughter, as you can imagine. But we had to fly into some place on the, some European city. So I said, why don't you choose these four cities because we could fly and spend some time. And so we, in Rome, we spent almost a week in Rome, just the two of us. It was a blast, you know. What a, what a great lifetime memory with my daughter like this. Why am I telling this story? Oh, well, <laughs> I get off track very easily. Well, I've studied a lot about Rome. Amazing city. 
One of the most famous emperors was Nero. You remember Nero? <clears throat> I think it was 63 AD when Rome burned, and he blamed the Christians on it. But if you remember, during Nero's reign, tremendous persecution took place. And they would put live Christians on poles and put paraffin around them and light them as candles for their parties, you know. They would send them into the arenas with these hungry, famished, wild animals and sewed them up in, you know, animal clothes so that they would be ravaged by these animals and killed. And, and so you know how bloodthirsty those, those arenas were. We went to the Colosseum and saw where, where it took place. That was an amazing place. But instead of cursing and screaming at the crowd like most of the, the prisoners that they would put to death, they would, the Christians were different. In fact, they were volunteering at times to line up, to line up and volunteer to go in. And they, while they were letting the lions out or the tigers out to come ravage them, they would hold hands in the middle and sing praises to God when they're about to be killed. And instead of the whole crowd just screaming for blood like they normally did, they would hush. It would be a whole hush. And it was said that they would turn to their neighbor and say, see how these Christians die. They were amazed. Persecution and how those Christians responded to it, it was the key. It was the breakthrough for one of the greatest civilizations in history. The Roman Empire fell to its knees and ultimately became a Christian empire because of how the Christians responded. So don't be afraid of opposition. Don't be afraid of spiritual warfare. Don't be afraid of persecution. Don't be afraid of hatred. We can love. We can pray. We can respond in ways that be a great witness unto Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we want to build this foundation. We're asking you to build the foundation. We can't build it. These questions need to be answered in our souls, God. We have to come to resolve, some resolve, some kind of conviction about these questions. I pray as each person leaves this conference this week that they would look at these questions, look at these passages, get alone with you, and allow you to work deeply in their soul. That you would make them a Matthew 6.33 man. Matthew 6.33, woman. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.